You're listening to the pulpit ministry of North Life Baptist Church with Pastor Harley Snowd. At North Life Baptist Church, our mission is to encourage each person to take the steps of loving God, growing together, and serving others. If you would like more information about our church, please visit our website at www.northlife.church. Now, stay tuned for today's message. Amen. If you will, take your Bible this morning and ask you to turn to John chapter 5. Isn't that a great concept? The calm will be the better because of the storms that we've been through. And I think part of heaven is going to be that we've tasted what it's like to be under the fall, the curse, the brokenness, and then to be free of that uh, as opposed to always having it perfect and everything just hunky-dory, as my mom would always say, whatever that means. But uh, just to know what it's like to have the sin and the curse and all the brokenness and then God to redeem that will only make heaven sweeter. Thankful for the anchor of Christ today. John chapter 5, we're going to start in verse 1, read down through verse number 9. One of my favorite stories of Christ's earthly ministry is found here in John chapter 5. Before we get to that, just a word of thanks. I want to thank those of you who filled out uh, surveys uh, for our wellness weekend that was last week. I think we had a couple dozen of you that did that. That really encouraged me, and some of that helped me shape the material that we covered last weekend. We didn't get to have a Q&A session. I was hoping to have that, but to appreciate those of you who participated in that. And then also those of you who invited guests, and some of you that were invited, you came back today, and so we're glad to see you this morning again, how God's working in your life. But appreciate many of you, your partnership last weekend, and that God was good to us, and we're grateful for it. John chapter 5, let's begin in verse 1. After this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there is at Jerusalem by the sheep market a pool, which is called in the Hebrew tongue uh, Bethesda, having five porches. In these lay a great multitude of impotent folk, of blind, halt, withered, waiting for the moving of the water. For an angel went down at a certain season into the pool and troubled the water, whosoever then first after the trouble in the water stepped in, was made whole of whatever disease he had. And a certain man was there, which had an infirmity thirty and eight years. When Jesus saw him lie and knew that he had been now a long time in that case, he said unto him, Wilt thou be made whole? The impotent man answered him, Sir, I have no man when the water is troubled to put me into the pool. But while I am coming, another steppeth down before me. Jesus saith unto him, Rise, take up thy bed, and walk. And immediately, imagine this, we don't know the story, imagine you're seeing this and hearing this for the first time, and immediately the man was made whole and took up his bed and walked. And on the same day was the Sabbath. And so we're looking at today Jesus as the Son of God. Did you notice that little word there back in verse number 7? Sir, I have no man. He's about to meet not a man, but the God and all that God was about to do. Let's pray and ask God to help us apply his word today. Father, thank you for all you've done for us, all that you are for us. Thank you for Jesus. Lord, may we be very careful today to appreciate a lot of our Savior and our Lord, but most of all to appreciate that he is God. And Lord, that bears so much weight and significance in our relationship with him and with you. And I pray today that we would yield to that if we've yet to do so as it relates to salvation, uh, as well as in our walk with you as believers, that, Lord, we would appreciate more fully your deity and its ramifications, its, its implications in our lives, that if we follow 
a Lord and Savior who is God, it changes everything, not just in the future, but in the here and now. Bless this study today, be honored in it, we pray in Christ's name, amen. As we begin today, um, I don't know if you've ever had this situation, I have this regularly, where you're in an elevator with other people you don't know. You know where I'm going with this? What do you do in that moment is often, it's an awkward moment, right? And especially if you're going up several floors and it's not one of those bullet elevators that clears, you know, 30 uh, floors a second and you're just there and there's usually like cheesy elevator music in the background. That doesn't help, okay? That actually makes it more awkward. Do we make eye contact? Do we make small talk? Do we just pretend the other person doesn't exist? What do we do with that? Um, A few years ago, actually, Paul, who plays our bass, his son Luke, was in our Christian school, uh, we did a skit. This was a harebrained idea of the youth pastor at the time, me, tr- yours truly, who also was teaching drama. We did a skit called Elevator Icebreakers. And uh, we had our church that we both were on staff at at the time, there were, the baptistry was elevated like above the choir loft, and there was just an opening. And so what we did is we took that opening and created a set where we built side walls and a back that had like a chair rail. It looked like the inside of an elevator. And then I had our students come in and do these different, quote, icebreakers. And I won't go through all of them. Some of them probably would offend people nowadays. That was a few years ago, some of the politically correctness of our day. Um, But a couple that come to mind was uh, we would list them, like they would come up on the screen and then the kids would act them out. Uh, And one of them was, you know, if you're with a friend, you play tag. Like you just, you come in the elevator and you start chasing each other around. And so you'd have, you know, the, the normal people standing and then these two guys trying to play tag in this real tight, confined space. The funniest one, though, was one of our guys came in and he had a fly swatter. And he, the whole, all the way, you know, while the cheesy music was playing, he had this imaginary fly that he was tracking and he would just whack people over the head with this fly swatter. How, hilarious to watch in real time and space. Elevator icebreakers. Can I just tell you today, as it relates to Jesus Christ, Jesus wants to elevate our view of who he is. He wants to take us above. I think we're probably most, if not all of us in the room, we've allowed him to be to this point God, but not fully who he longs to be. And here in the text we're going to look at today, Jesus basically forces people to acknowledge and accept or reject his deity with what he does in this man's life. The main emphasis of the story is not the pool, we'll talk about that in just a moment, or the man who was healed. It was about Jesus being able to unmistakably claim and then confirm that he was the Son of God. And so today as we consider that in our own lives, I think one of the tendencies is we want to just kind of blend in. And I'm just telling you, if our leader is God in the flesh, we can't blend in. He forces all of us to reckon uh, with uh, his deity. So let's talk for a few minutes today about how we can grow in our intimacy with Jesus through an appreciation of two specific characteristics that are uniquely true of Jesus because uh, he is God. Let's talk about the first one. Number one, first of all, Jesus is the one we should accept as the gracious Son. He is the gracious Son. I was reading a biography several years ago about Henry Ford, and he was talking about inventing the car. I, for several years, we were on staff at a church in Michigan and right just north of Detroit and all of the auto industry that was and still is there. 
And in the biography, he was talking about inventing what at the time was called a horseless carriage. There was no automobile. There was no car. There was no truck. There was none of the stuff that now is just a standard fare of transportation. I don't know if any of us read, rode a horse to church today, okay, or even mass transit. We probably, most if not all of us, came in uh, in an automobile or a car, a vehicle. But he said this. He said, if I'd asked people what they wanted prior to the invention of the automobile, they would have asked only for a faster horse. And can I tell you today, listen to me, oftentimes we think we know what we need. But I'm telling you, the grace of God through the person of Jesus Christ as the Son of God can meet needs we don't even know we have today, can satisfy desires that we don't even realize burn within us, cravings and gnawings and just aching for things that the grace of God can give. And I'm telling you, until we recognize Jesus as God, we don't have access to that glorious rich thing called the grace of God. Now, here in our text, we'll break down the verses in a moment, but in verse 2, John here speaks of a pool, and he says in the Hebrew tongue it is referred to uh, as... Uh, as uh, uh, I'm, just, where's my, I'm having a blank here. Bethesda, sorry. I'm thinking of Bethsaida. I was also there. I'm trying to struggle with that word. Uh, the word here has the idea of grace, a house of grace, a means of grace. And so here this man uh, is offered grace in one of the most uh, unideal places uh, in his day. God meets him with grace uh, in this place. All right, let's talk about a couple things as it relates to that, this grace that comes to us only through Jesus as the Son of God. Number one, there in your notes, jot this down, draw closer to Jesus who heals with his grace. Uh, draw closer to Jesus who heals. And so we see Jesus providing healing. Go back to verse one. Notice that Jesus comes to the feast uh, right on time, right on schedule as the Son of God. Let me give you a couple of things underneath of this as it relates to healing. Number one, Jesus provides healing for those who feel lost in the crowd. Jesus provides healing alone as the Son of God to those who feel lost in the crowd. And so he comes to Jerusalem, he who had instituted this feast as God, now as God in the flesh, he subjects himself to this schedule as a Jewish man. And it's interesting, he's going to be criticized for not observing the law in just a moment, but he is being very precise in verse number one. He's following what is God's law, not man's law, very carefully and thoroughly. Uh, and so we see here uh, this pool that is mentioned in verse two. Uh, we, we know now, it's referenced there briefly, was near the sheep market or the sheep gate outside of uh, Jerusalem. It's interesting because the Sheep Gate was not like the main entrance to the city. Um, in fact, I don't know what's in your mind's eye when you think of the Pool of Bethesda, but I tend to view it a bit more resort-like than probably it actually was. Crystal clear water with a gentle slope into the pool, beach chairs with, you know, pool guy, bring me a fresh whatever, you know, beverage. That, that's not the feel here. This was a place of functional cleansing. This was not where the, the movers and shakers of society in this day would have gone. It was almost the last place you could go to find uh, water and a place to sit near that was water, let alone some of the things that were associated uh, with it. And I wanted to just show you quickly. So this would be a layout of Jerusalem. Don't get bogged down in some of the auxiliary things. 
Um, there are several places people believe Calvary was here, um, and then the tomb that was close by. I would have gone to what is the traditional Calvary and tomb there to the left. Uh, you see Antonio's fortress, the temple, which is not there, but the, the remnants of it, Herod's family palace, and then Herod's palace. And so that's kind of the, the layout. But then up uh, to the right there, you will see the pool of Bethesda. And the pool was actually two separate pools. And here, here's what's interesting. Until the late 1800s, there was no archaeological evidence of the pool. It was, it was a bone of contention as it relates to reconciling archaeology with uh, the accounts of Scripture. And yet, late in the 1800s, and then they've done more uh, ex- excavations since, they have uncovered uh, the pools. And what's interesting, even the porticos or the, the porches that are referenced. Did you see that in verse 2? It says uh, there were, it had five porches. And I had several pictures I took, um, but this was the one I think that captures it the best. Um, One of the things that's interesting when you go there, I was just there for those that don't know this, I was there just a month and a half ago, most of what you're looking at is beneath what is now grade level. So this pool, you can kind of see, so this would have been a, just I think with my phone, I took it vertically so you could see the, the depth of it. But the bank to the left is actually all that they've, they've uh, dug out. So there's, there's much more to this pool, but they got, you can see some of the columns and likely the porches. This is the southern pool, uh, the, the one that we went through. We actually were able to work our way down some stairs. You can kind of see a tunnel there. We're able to walk around kind of the backside and then come out the other side. But this is the pool of Bethesda, and it was a place that was not... The, the, again, the ideal place to sit. It was not the place that people yearned to be associated with, and yet Jesus comes near this man who was lost in the crowd. Jerusalem is busy all around this man, and this pool is even surrounded by the maimed, the halted, the paralyzed, and yet Jesus knew this man. Jesus knew his need, and Jesus was about to meet that need. All right, so look back at our text now at verse 3. So why are all these folks, including this dear man here, in these, these, these porches, this surrounding edifice, lay a great multitude of impotent folk of blind halt, withered, waiting for the moving of the water. And then John adds this, at least what was a, um, a, uh, a thought or an idea or a tradition, uh, whether this actually occurred or not, we don't know, but I think John here is giving at least why they're there. It was at least believed an angel went down at a certain season into the pool, the pool would be troubled or stirred. Whosoever then first at the troubling of the water stepped in was made whole of whatever disease he had. So the idea was we're waiting, we're waiting, we're waiting. And when the the surface of the water moved or bubbled or stirred, the first person in the water uh, would be healed. Now it's interesting to me just to contrast that. We don't know for sure if that's what actually happened. John is just giving again what the belief or common thought was of that day. But interesting, you have all these people circling around this pool waiting for some arbitrary moment where where an angel shows up and the Son of God is walking the streets, offering His grace, offering His goodness, and yet is that not true of our day? Folks who jump through all kinds of religious hoops and superstitious whatever, and God Himself is available to us through Jesus Christ. I find that so striking. The crowds were thronging around that which was superstitious. Jesus 
was available. And so today, may we take heart in that, the access that we have to God himself. All right, look at verse 5 now. So it goes from a general description of this place to now verse 5, and a certain man was there. And it's just neat, having been there, just to try to process this man and his need and what Jesus did in his life, which had an infirmity 30 and 8 years. Verse 6, when Jesus saw him lie, notice this, and knew that he had been now a long time in that case. And so we see this man who had been an invalid for 38 years. How, how old was Jesus probably at this moment? 32, 33? So this man had had this malady for longer than Jesus was on planet earth. And yet Jesus knew. Jesus knew what he had had and how long he had had it, and he knew what he was about to do. And so if you feel lost in the crowd today, may I remind you, Jesus knows you, and Jesus, with his grace, wants to meet your needs. Now, I would just say this before we move on. What made this man so special from everybody else at the pool? There were likely those there who had had a malady longer than this man, those who had other more desperate situations maybe associated with them. Why was this man healed? All I can tell you is God's grace. Can I remind you today, if we know God and we have his healing power and work going on in our lives, we can't claim merit for that. We didn't earn that. We're not entitled to that. He as God has shed his grace upon us. And so may we appreciate what God does for this man and what it says about what God has done for us. May I say today, you can think in this big old world, and even maybe in the crowd that's assembled here in the room this morning, that the God of grace doesn't know you and is not willing to help you. But Jesus says differently. If we have Jesus, then God says, I do know, and I do care, and I do want to work. And whatever you're facing, tangibly, intangibly today, he knows, he's available, his grace is provided. So if you feel lost in the crowd today, Jesus says God is the answer. I go to the end of verse 6, and we find a second aspect of this, that God's grace is available to us. Notice the end of verse 6, he says, Wilt thou be made whole? Verse 7, The impotent man answered him, Sir, I have no man when the water is troubled to put me into the pool, but when I am coming, another steppeth down before me. Number two, jot this down. Not only is God's grace through Jesus heal us, when we're lost in the crowd. Number two, healing for those who cannot help themselves. Healing for those who cannot help themselves. This past Monday was Valentine's Day, and I know that hits each of us differently. If we have a spouse, then that is a unique season. Hopefully, you didn't get yourself in trouble with. Some of you are grieving the loss of a spouse, or you yearn to have a spouse, and so there's all of those angles to that holiday, that moment, But can you remember, for those of us who have been in love and hopefully still are just head over heels in love with the person that God, if he has put that person in our life, do you remember how you couldn't, you just couldn't help yourself? You just, you just, you felt strongly for them. You couldn't uh, in any way hinder that or tamp that down. The other day I heard someone say this, marry, so he's talking about how to know who to marry. And here was his qualification. Marry the one who gives you the same feeling you get when you see your food coming to your table at the restaurant. That's, that's the one, okay? You just can't help yourself. Um, can I tell you today as it relates to our, our weaknesses and our frailties, that one of the things that God's grace gives us that's amazing is that he can do things for us when we can't do anything for ourselves. 
In fact, we self-destruct further. We, we sabotage our, even our best attempt to help ourselves only hurts us further. And the grace of God can come in and meet the needs of those today who feel as if healing is impossible because they cannot help themselves. Now, it's interesting here in verse 6 that Jesus says to him, Wilt thou be made whole? Like, isn't that an obvious answer? He's been there for 38 years. He's suffered immeasurable pain and inconvenience and isolation from his family. And yet Jesus asked him this obvious question. Why does Jesus ask him, will you, do you want to be made whole? I think it's to draw out of the man today an admission of his helplessness. We all have to own that. And then asking Jesus for his help. It involves our will. And so God's grace to us is not universal. It doesn't, he doesn't just dump it from heaven on all of us equally. There's some aspects of His grace that are what are called common grace. We, we all have entered into that today. But the saving grace, the healing grace, the transformative grace of God must be asked for and accepted on our part. May I remind you of this today. As one author said, we are not saved by our own will, yet the human will must be exercised before God will save us. It's God's will that all men should repent and, and, and to receive Christ. Peter's clear in 2 Peter chapter 3. But we must choose. Our will must ask for what God's grace freely offers to all. All right, verse 7. Notice he again references that no one's willing to help him. Uh, as he looked at mankind, as he looked at others around him, in fact, they often got between him and what he craved, which was the healing. So may we not look to man for what God's grace alone can give. All right, verse 8. So that's processed. Christ answers. The man responds. Jesus saith unto him, Rise, take up thy bed, and walk. And immediately the man was made whole and took up his bed and walked. And so we see here Jesus commanding him to rise, carry his mattress or his bed he had laid on for so many years, and to walk. And it's interesting because the grace of God, what I love about the grace of God is not only does it call us to better things and to a better walk, if you will, but it gives us the ability to do it. So this man, as he rose up, the immediate healing and strength that came back to those, those legs and that body, the power that flowed through him was a result of the grace of God. He yielded to it, he accepted it, but it was God's grace that generated the ability he had. Can you imagine for the first time in 38 years? You think he just kind of just slowly ambled out of, I bet he was doing laps. I don't know if he was doing cannonballs into the pool, but I'm just saying, he, there was a, man, God just worked in my life. There was, a, there was an instantaneous change in his life. Have you had that? Maybe not with legs that are broken, but a heart and a body and a soul that, have you had that moment? where God has changed you with uh, His grace. Um, I heard someone the other day say this. I think this applies as we even start gearing up for Easter and this spring season that at least is three or four months away that we'll someday get to here in Ohio. Um, but I was thinking about this idea of Christ and His mindset with resurrection power. The author said this, Jesus didn't let cultural norms, political correctness, or social status dictate His relationships with people. He ate with sinners, he touched lepers, he spent time with outcasts. Here it is. Jesus did not require people to change before coming to him, but after meeting him, they 
changed. This man was never the same once he met the grace of God in the person of God, which is Jesus Christ. May I ask you a question today? The deity of, or this thought and then this question, the deity of Christ is not intended to be abstract, but transformative. Where in your life are evidences of his healing changes in you and through you? Because listen to me, everyone who follows Jesus experiences that power. And the question ought to be, if I'm not experiencing the grace of God like this man in some way, am I really as close to Jesus as I would profess or even believe this morning? He, as God, heals us with his grace. Where is that healing evidence in your life? Where can it grow if you'll draw nigh to him? All right, notice the end of verse 9. And there's a second thing that Christ does with the grace of God as the Son of God. At the end of verse number 9, we see this little addendum. And on the same day was the Sabbath. Number 2, jot this down. Draw closer to the Jesus who challenges with his grace. So he heals with his grace. Number 2, he challenges with his grace. Before we talk about a second group that was around this pool and heard of what had occurred in this man's life, can I encourage you that many times the grace of God makes us uncomfortable? Um, one of the things I hear often from the lips of the saints, maybe sometimes even in this room, maybe you've heard me say this as well, we will say something to this effect, I'm just not comfortable with, and we feel like that alone justifies our position. Uh, I was talking with one of our senior men in the lobby after our small group this morning. He was just talking about, this is new to me. Man, I'm excited about it. I just figured I can learn something new. And he just wants to jump in and figure it out. And I'm excited to, to go on that journey with him. But I, I think sometimes our comfort level is actually, listen to me, the greatest lid to the grace of God. Because Jesus regularly made people very, very uncomfortable. And it was in that place where his grace was most freely and abundantly being expressed and manifested. And so the grace of God often challenges our levels of comfort. And if you only will stay where you're comfortable, it will often leave you and me on the outside looking in on where his grace is moving. Don't let that be you today. Don't let that be me. We need to commit to letting God, specifically Jesus, challenge us with his grace. And it is sadly the version of our grace, or what we view as grace, that fits into our comfort zone and our previously formed biases and assumptions that is not the grace of God. It's not what God is about. It's not where He's headed. May we allow Him to challenge us. All right, notice verse 10. So it happens on the Sabbath. John adds that little uh, addendum, if you will, of narrative. And then in verse 10, we see now why the response. The Jews therefore said unto him that was cured... It is the Sabbath day. It is not lawful for thee to carry thy bed. Number one, jot this down underneath of this challenge. First of all, he challenges with his grace those who get hung up on technicalities. His grace is a challenge for those who get hung up on technicalities. Does, it, does that read a little awkward to you when you read verse 10? How could they not at least be happy? How could they not rejoice with the man who is doing the cannonballs and running laps or whatever he was doing, but he's, he's still carrying that bed? Jesus didn't tell him when to set it down or what to do with it. He's like, I guess I'll just 
keep moving around and that testimony of what had been and what now was. And, and yet all this crowd can see is where he has violated their technical view of the Sabbath. Verse 11, I love the man's response. He answered them, he that made me whole, <laughs> the same said to me, take up thy bed and walk. Listen, you guys can think whatever you want. This guy just healed me and I'm going with what he said. And here's what I'm learning. Listen to me, bluntly put, here's what I'm learning. If I have to choose between anyone, including me, what I have to say or think, or what you have to say or think, or anybody else, or the Son of God, I'm going with what the Son of God has to say. He's the one that's made me whole. He's the one that will make me whole. And so may we allow His words as the Son to carry the weight that they should. And just this thought as it relates to the crowd we see that criticize this man and the miracle the legalist in each of us, and we all have it. For some of us, we're legalist about legalists. If you follow that drift, we talked about that several months ago. We get hung up on something. And for each of us, that inward legalism that we're all prone to, if we're not careful, it's crowding out, listen to me, the grace of God. The grace of God. This wasn't clean. This wasn't kosher. This didn't fit in bounds of what they had as their religious bias and preferences. And yet Jesus healed this man with his grace. One author I was reading said this, we must never domesticate the church. I love that term. We must never domesticate the church into catering to religious nostalgia, consumeristic preferences, or debating minor issues. Listen to this statement. God's plan for the church is to be a bunch of troublemakers for grace by proclaiming the gospel, listen to me, that brings spiritually dead people alive. That's what we're called to be. And when we get on these technical bents, I'm not saying details don't matter, but oftentimes it's just our preferences and technicalities. We miss out on our calling as the church of Jesus Christ. All right, look at verse 12. Then asked they him, this same man who just said, listen, I don't know what you guys are thinking, but this guy told me to do this, the same one who made me whole. What man is that which said unto thee, take up thy bed and walk? That question is the key question of this entire chapter. Who is it? What man is the word they use? Notice verse 13, and he that was healed wist not or knew not who it was, for Jesus had conveyed himself away, a multitude being in that place. Number two, jot this down. Not only does Christ challenge us with his grace where we get hung up on technicalities. Number two, it's a challenge for those who feel threatened, threatened by supernatural. Threatened by that which is supernatural. And so in verse 12 and 13, they come, they ask him the questions, and, and he responds, I, I don't know who he is, but he's the one who has healed me. They are threatened by that which is a miracle, that which is supernatural. Verse 14, afterward, Jesus findeth him in the temple. Uh, we don't know for sure why he was in the temple, possibly just praising the Lord and, 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 and rejoicing in what God had done in his life, but they find him there, or Jesus finds him there. Notice, and said unto him, Behold, thou art made whole. Sin no more, lest a worse thing come unto thee. Lest you get nervous as it relates to the grace of God, notice Jesus is very careful to deal with the sin that's involved in the story. Sometimes we get God's grace and sin and we almost pit them against each other when the two actually 
through the person of Jesus Christ are in harmony and it can be dealt with as they interact with one another. And so you see Jesus calling on this man, man to go and sin no more. It's very likely that this man's paralysis or his malady was the result of his own sin. Now, I want to say before we talk about that for a moment, not every illness or sickness is the result of that same person's sin, but let's add that conciliatory or disclaimer to what I'm about to say. But it seems to be clear that this man, what he had suffered at the poolside for 38 years was preceded by, and listen to me, maybe even perpetuated by a persistent sinful bent. And so Jesus, as the giver of God's grace, calls him to abandon that and to crucify, if you will, the flesh and whatever had persisted previous to this moment of interaction with Christ. Um, And so the thought would be this. It's one thing to sin against the law, as this man had done. It's another thing to sin after we have the grace of God. And I will submit to you today, the reason we struggle with sin in our life is because we forget Jesus is God and that he's given us grace that frees us from sin. Grace is not license. It's liberty from sin, not license to sin. And so Jesus here calls this man from a life of sin and the perpetual consequences of it uh, through his grace and his mercy. All right, notice what the man does in verse 15. So he hears those words. He departs and told the Jews that it was Jesus. He goes back and answers the question that previously they had asked, which had made him whole. There it is again, the wholeness that Jesus had come and so, uh, had brought to him. And so we see just like the woman at Samaria, he wants to spread the word and he begins to share it uh, with those who ask and probably a few who did not. Verse 16, therefore did the Jews persecute Jesus because of this testimony and sought to slay him because he had done these things on the Sabbath day. And this enrages these religionists, these legalist, this mindset they have produces great anger. Now, I just want to say this before we move on. There's nothing in the text here that indicates Jesus actually violated the law of God. One of the things you'll find when you're in the realm of grace is sometimes you get accused of things that from a man's perspective violates something but does not violate God's law. Jesus didn't violate anything here. The law had given provision for acts of mercy, right? Remember in other places, how many of you have an oxen that falls in a ditch? You have someone who has a need. The Sabbath was, was, yes, and generally it was meant to be honored and reserved in the way this crowd is thinking, but acts of mercy were acceptable. And so what Jesus did in no way violated the law, and yet it infuriated them and caused them to persecute him. Several years ago, we were in uh, Lancaster, PA, and um, I think it was there, maybe it was when we were in Branson, one of the two sight and sound theaters, I don't know if you've been to those or not, hopefully at some point, uh, at least the seniors and anybody else who wants to jump in will maybe go there uh, for a play and maybe overnight trip there. But we were at Samson, which I believe was actually shown in Branson, we saw it at the theater there. And I don't know if you know the story of Samson very well, but you know, it doesn't end necessarily on a real high note, right, in some ways. He ends, you know, he, he, his hair is shorn, He loses the presence and power of God in his life for a season through Delilah and her deception and her seduction. And so he caves that. So it has all of that. And they had some really cool effects where it felt like the building collapsed on you. And it actually felt secure enough you weren't worried. But they had pillars that fell. And just choreographically, just unbelievable how the technology and the heart behind it. 
One of the things I loved is at the very end of that play, after it shows Samson who killed more in his death than in his life, and he, and he dies, is they gave a, a message of salvation, which they typically do, including they invite people to come forward. There are staff and pastors there at the front that will minister to the folks who are there. Um, and they gave this theme of how God's grace is still sufficient for men like Samson. Samson's mentioned in Hebrews 11, right? He's with the Lord today. And what was neat to me was having my two sons, who are a few years younger than they are now, as well as me, for us all to be reminded we're all going to fail God at some point between now and glory and probably do it in ways that are just as equally, just as dishonoring to God, maybe not as tangibly as Samson, and yet His grace is still available. And I love they heard that, and I was reminded of that as we all wander at times. As we all get off track in some way, the grace of God is available through Jesus Christ. Last question, we'll move to our second point today. Does it bother you how free Jesus is with his grace? Does that bother you sometimes? If it does, listen to me, you're not as close and you're much further away from Jesus than you think you are. Because those who are close to Jesus first know how desperately they need God's grace on a daily, moment-by-moment basis. And number two, because they're close to Jesus, they want to see it spread to others. They don't have to jump through hoops. They don't have to do anything or earn anything. In fact, that kind of diminishes the grace and neutralizes the grace. You want to see it. You extend it yourself. That is the one walking close to Jesus. Would you be willing to accept your own desperate need? And would you take the worst person you can think of and convince yourself through prayer and study of the Word that God's grace is sufficient for that person. That will change your walk with Jesus. It will change how you walk out your walk with Jesus. May we allow His grace to be everything it should be through His deity. All right, go to verse 17. We're not going to look at the rest of this chapter in detail, but just a few thoughts in a second area of the deity of Jesus Christ. Look at verse 18. Therefore the Jews sought the more to kill Him, Because he not only had broken the Sabbath, here it is, but said also that God was his Father, making him, here it is, equal with God. Number two, not only is he the gracious Son, number two, he is the equal Son. We're all sons, if we know Christ as Savior, sons of God, but we are not the Son of God. We are not equal to God in the sense that Jesus Christ is. And so not only is he a gracious Son, he is a a God of equality. Um, have you ever had somebody share with you, this is like this, and when they tell you what that thing is you used to enjoy, but they compare it to something you don't enjoy, it ruins it for you? You ever had that? You know what that reminds me of? And you're like, oh, thanks a lot. You just ruined whatever that is. The other day I saw this. Well, I'll ask you this question. How many of you are celery people? Maybe you like celery, all right? If it's got the right stuff on it, I like it too, okay? Anyway, so this might ruin it for you or might make you defensive today. This might really offend you. I'm sorry. Somebody said celery is this. This was there, and I don't think this person likes celery, okay, for the record. Celery is when you have the sudden urge to bite into water with hair in it. (laughs) Doesn't that, that pushes lunch back a little bit, right? That literally makes me want to take my tongue and just clean my teeth again, just Ah, you know, water with hair in it. That's such a good description of celery, isn't it? Some of you, that ruins it for you now. Um, Some of you, that just embeds you further on why you hate celery. 
I have a good reason now. Pastor mentioned it in church today. Um, Jesus Christ is like God. Jesus Christ is God. You can take the equal sign and put God on one side and Jesus on the other and even flip it around. And it's still true. Jesus is God. And I, I don't know that we actually appreciate that fully. Like if I have access to God directly, man, that's, that's I put on my best whatever and I, I, I'm excited and eager, but Jesus tends to not evoke always the same uh, emotion. We must remember that he is equal with God. And so he wants us to elevate our view of him uh, through these few verses we'll look at in conclusion. Now, just to set it up, in verse 17 and 18, Jesus is talking about the Sabbath in a bigger way. We don't have time to break this down at length, but he's basically saying and referring back to when God the Father built the world, created the world, and then he rested on the seventh day. Once the fall occurred, Jesus is basically saying, we haven't stopped working since, trying to reach you with the grace of God. God rested, then you ruined it, and now the grace of God's been pursuing us ever since. He says, we've been working. We, God, and me as his son. And so he's talking in this area of equality. And obviously the Jews caught the inference and they recognized he was making himself equal with God. All right, let's talk about a couple of things as it relates to this equality. Number one, draw closer to the Jesus who claims, who claims with his equality. And we see Jesus claiming three things here that God alone can claim. Look at verse 19. Then answered Jesus and said unto them, Verily I say unto you, the Son of Man, notice, can do nothing of himself but what he seeth the Father do. For whatsoever things soever he doeth, these also doeth the Son likewise. Let me give you three things under that. I don't know if they're in your notes today, but three claims as it relates to equality with God. Number one, he claims to have God's abilities. I can do what God does. He claims to have a parallel to God and equality with God as it relates to his equality. In verse 19, it's equal in his working. Go to verse 20. For the, son loveth the, uh, the Father loveth the Son and showeth him all things that he doeth, and he will show him greater works than these that ye may marvel. He's equal in knowing. Notice that he shows him all things. He's equal in ability. Uh, he's in working. He's equal in his ability of knowing. And then thirdly, in verse 21, for as the Father raiseth up the Son and quickeneth them, even so the Son quickeneth whom he will. He has the ability not just of working and knowing, but of resurrecting. Down in verse 28 and 29, he talks about it again. This resurrection power that Jesus Christ possesses. Do we fully believe that the Jesus that we end our prayers with, in Jesus' name, amen, that he has the same ability as God himself? He is God and can do anything that God can do. And so he works in the same way, he knows in the same way, he resurrects in the same way. All right, number two, he also claims to be equal in his judgment. So in his abilities, number two, in his judgment. Look at verse 22. For the, for the Father judgeth no man, notice this, but hath committed all judgment unto the Son. All judgment to the Son. How can the Son judge all things unless he knows all things? And so Jesus here, again, is alluding to his deity. He knows not just what we've done, but he knows why we did them. He knows the thoughts and the motivations of our hearts, why we're even in this room this morning and what we're thinking. He's, he is God. He has the same ability 
to judge. And yet these Jews are judging him. Isn't that interesting? When before them is the judge of all the earth that someday they will stand before. And many of them at the great white throne judgment and cast in the lake of fire because they refused to submit to his deity. All right, verse 23, that all men should honor the Son even as they honor the Father. This verse is on the front of your bulletin today. He that honoreth not the Son honoreth not the Father which hath sent him. Thirdly, he claims equality and honor. He claims to be able to be worthy of worship and honor that God alone is. And that had to have jarred this Jewish crowd. They've been taught the Lord our God is one Lord. Uh, Worship him only. Um, They were a monotheistic uh, religion. They had been taught that. And here is Jesus saying, I have the right to receive worship and honor just like Jehovah. Why? Because he is Jehovah. He is equal to God and therefore can receive equally that same praise and worship. One of the things I notice in our day is that people want God without Jesus. Well, I'm not... I don't believe in Jesus, but I believe in God. I, I want to please God. I, I want to have a relationship with God. Can I tell you, the person who tries to separate God from Jesus is deceived or willfully ignorant. You cannot associate with God without associating with His Son. You can't worship God without worshiping His Son. Watchman Nee, in one of his books, he says this, a person who claims to be God must belong to one of three categories. Several others have seized this idea, but he would be the originator of it. So a person who says, I'm God, has to fit into one of three categories. Here they are. First, if he claims to be God and yet in fact is not, he has to be a madman or a lunatic. So that's option one. Option two, second, if he is neither God nor a lunatic, he has to be a a liar, deceiving others by his lie. Thirdly, if he is neither of these, he must be God. Now, here's the thought. This is profound today. There is no need for us to prove if Jesus of Nazareth is God or not. All we have to do is find out if he is a lunatic or a liar. And if he's not, he is God. Isn't that a beautiful sequence of thought? He is either a liar, a lunatic, or he is God. He is Lord. And so as we submit to him and we recognize his deity, we give him the reverence and the worship that he deserves. Here would be the thought today as it relates to our life. It is really all or nothing with Jesus. Either you accept all of who he is as God in the flesh or you reject all of him. All of his teaching, all of his claims, all of his impact and import in your life. It's all or nothing. If Jesus is God, he's everything. If he's not God, he's of no significance or consequence in our lives. And so the question today is, which will it be for you? Do you believe Jesus is God? Are you willing to submit to him as Savior? Are we as believers willing to submit to him as Lord? I see us cherry picking in our sanctification. If Jesus is God, we don't have the right to do that, to a la carte our way to heaven. If he calls me to do something or to be something, if he is God, I must submit to him. Or I don't really believe he's God like I claim to. If he's God, he is rightfully our Lord. And so may we submit to that in any area that God brings to bear today. All right, lastly, go to verse 32. And let's spend a few minutes in a second area where his equality with God bears down with significance in our lives today. There is another 
verse 32, that beareth witness of me, and I know that the witness which he witnesseth of me is true. Lastly, number two, draw closer to the Jesus who validates. So he claims with his equality, number two, he validates. Um, any of you noticed, uh, I was just in the grocery store on Friday, I ran into Jerry Flynn there. He had been exercising at the gym. I'd been a bum all day, I think. Um, but anyway, we ran each other, and I picked up some groceries, and I went down the cereal aisle, and then I just like, eh, we're fine. I'll get some later. Have you noticed how like they have like family size on the box, you know, in the corner in yellow and bold letters, and then like super size or jumbo size or whatever? But have you noticed that even those boxes are getting smaller? Um, they're also still raising the prices, but where they're really gouging us is, is just shaving an ounce off here and an ounce off there. And you're like, man, we're burning through stuff quicker. There's a reason for that. Um, th- this idea of, of cereal and processing that. The other day, I, I maybe I've shared this once before, but this is a picture of a dad. And he's filling the name brand <laughs> with the Tutti Fruities, okay? And the caption was this, they'll never know the difference. Yeah, right, Okay. Little, especially boys. I have boys, and our texture matters. These aren't like what we usually get. They're the same color, and, but they're just not the same. You do realize with Jesus Christ that God is not giving us a lesser version of himself. Like I think sometimes if we're not careful, man, if I could have seen the pillar of cloud, you know, I was in some places where I, I could visualize that or whatever, or the fire or the, the visible whatever of God in the Old Testament, the Jericho walls falling, But Jesus is not a lesser. He is the best from God. He is God. He's equal with God. And so he validates himself uh, in these last few verses that we're going to look at today. He affirms who he is through the examples of Scripture. In fact, I would say this before we move on. Since when have Christians undervalued the fact that Jesus is God? You do know that previous generations died for the doctrine of the deity of Jesus Christ. For us, I don't know that we're as bothered by it as we once were. It matters that we believe and others around us know that Jesus is God. We need to care about that. We need to be a part of seeing that validated uh, in our day. I was reading the other day, an author was talking about uh, um, corporate culture, businesses, and protecting their values. And I think it has import for us as believers today. He said this, A well-built brand is the culmination of intangibles that do not directly flow to the revenue or the profitability of a company, listen, but contribute to its texture. Forsaking them can take a subtle collective toll. And I think where we're seeing a subtle collective toll of, of losing that texture is we've lost the full texture of Jesus being God. A lot of the issues in our ranks today, in our marriages in our parenting, in this church, and in our community at large, is because we don't fully surrender to and identify with Jesus, my Jesus, he is the God. What he says matters. What he's doing is of importance. And so the deity of Christ uh, needs to be more in our lives. All right, three things quickly where he uses validation to affirm his deity. First, his forerunner, He mentions him in verse 32 briefly in kind of a general sense, but look at verse 33. He clears up who he's referencing. Ye sent unto John, and he bear witness unto uh, the truth. Verse 34, uh, verse, uh, yeah, 34, but I receive not testimony from man, but these things I say unto you uh, that that you might be saved. He, John, was a burning and a shining light, and you were willing for a season to rejoice in his light. And so his forerunner, 
John the Baptist. They accepted John, but they didn't accept who followed, which really was the whole reason for John. He was the forerunner. He was the preparer. And yet they rejected the king that this man John had run before. Say, Pastor, how does that apply to me today, this idea that Jesus has been affirmed by John? Can I tell you something this morning? Everything and everyone in your life to date, from the moment you existed, began your existence till this moment, has been preparing you to accept more fully or for the first time that Jesus is your God. Everything in your life, the details, the nuances, the low points, the high points, all the random things that have happened, God has been laying the groundwork to bring to bear again or for the first time today, Jesus alone is God. Hear him, submit to him, believe him, uh, yield to whatever he has for your life. And so this preparation was missed by the crowd at large. Are you picking up on those affirmations, those validations that Jesus is God that are all around you? All right, verse 36. He mentions a second one briefly, but I have a greater witness than that of John for the works which the Father hath given me to finish, the same works that I do bear witness of me that the Father hath sent me. Number two, Jesus refers to his miracles. So his forerunner validates his equality with God. Number two, his miracles. Now we do know in scripture that unsaved people do miracles. Uh, Satan himself can, can perform miracles and Others were given the ability to do miracles that weren't God, but they could still do miracles. But I would remind you that the miracles that Jesus did were unique, right? Nobody gave him the ability to do a miracle. He intrinsically was able to produce them. In fact, he also could pass on that ability to his apostles. And lastly, most importantly, the miracles he did were very precise to show he was the Messiah. A lot of his miracles were fulfilling Old Testament prophecies about the fact God's coming in the flesh. And so his miracles affirmed uh, his deity. Lastly, verse 37, the father himself, which has sent me, hath borne witness of me. You have neither heard his voice at any time nor seen his shape, and ye have not his word, and ye have not his word abiding in you, for whom he has sent, for whom he has sent, him ye believe not. So he refers lastly, his father validates that he is God. Who better knows who is God and who isn't God than God, right? And last I checked, God has gone on record, as in God the Father, of who Jesus is. And so therefore, any other thoughts or philosophy has to at least subject to or submit to what God has already said. I think God knows who he is, right? They've dwelled together for eternity. He knows the Trinity. He understands it in ways we probably never will. He, he has affirmed the Son. Uh, that could be a reference to Christ's baptism, remember? This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. We could go to the Mount of Transfiguration. We'll get to that later in the narrative. But G God is the one who affirms the deity of Jesus Christ. And so he reminds him, you haven't seen God, but you've seen me. And if you've seen me, you've heard his voice. You've seen his shape. You've seen him in me. And then verse 39 ends, look at it. Search the scriptures for in them ye think you have eternal life and they are they which testify of me. So the father affirms him at his baptism uh, later on in his transfiguration, but he also affirms him through uh, the scriptures. These scriptures that the Jews thought they found life in was also the place where Jesus is revealed. 
Um, one of the things I've been processing these last, last month or so, it's been awesome to see a lot of our adults getting in and even our teenagers in our discipleship groups. And again, if you haven't yet, would love to have you join us next week in that Wednesday or Sunday. But it's been awesome to see us processing our inadequacies as we're working on journaling Scripture, memorizing Scripture. Today we just mentioned all of us, the one, someone that God's laid in our heart to be a spiritual encouragement to, to either witness to them, share Christ with them, or encourage them if they're away from the Lord or discouraged. Um, and just that sense of, man, this is going to grow us. It's been incredible to be on that journey with the 16 or so men in my group on Sunday mornings. Um, and I share with them this thought the other day, and I wanted to encourage you with it. It brings to bear some thoughts as it relates to Jesus being God. An author said this, Jesus knowing, this would be the Great Commission. So we're in Matthew 28, the end of the story, if you will, that we're building toward in John. Jesus knowing that there was both doubt and belief in the room and was about to commission this group of fearful believers to carry out the gospel of the resurrection life to the world. The author said, I would likely have thought they're not ready. It's too soon. They don't know uh, they need to know so much more. They need to come to a deeper understanding of what just happened. They need time to mature. But in the middle of the most amazing, confusing, gloriously mind-bending moment in history, Jesus did not hesitate. He simply said, go. And then the author said this, I love the words that follow because they tell us why Jesus was confident to draft these men at this moment for his worldwide gospel mission. Here it is. He was confident, not because of what was in them, but what he knew they would do, or what they would do, but because he knew what it was in himself and what he would do. Because of the completeness of Christ's authority, the inescapability of his presence, the surety of his promises, we don't have to be afraid of examining our weaknesses or failures either. And then here's the statement. We are not cemented to our track record. We are not left to our small bag of personal resources because he is his best gift to us. Our potential is great, and change is possible. And I, here it is. We limit what God can do in our life because we have a low view of Jesus Christ, lower than I think we practically would really want to admit today. I can't. I've never. This is new. We have the Spirit of God inside of us. We have the Son of God interceding for us, who says, come to the throne in my name, and you can have anything you need. We limit God because we have a low view of Jesus. And I wanted to show this video, if you guys have the audio for this. So let me set the table for this. Uh, Michelle Hinkle sent me this the other night. The kids are also working through this same thing. They're usually on this side of the auditorium on Wednesday nights. They're memorizing Scripture. And so they're working through these same disciplines. And this is Griffin, who was sick this past Wednesday, quoting the verse that had been assigned to him. And the, the quote, the, or the message that Michelle sent was, he was a little overwhelmed when he heard about this, that he was going to have to memorize Scripture at church, you know, and just working through that emotionally. And this is him Wednesday night. Blessed are the peacemakers. Don't you love how he says that? For, for they shall be called the <laughs> he fades off. He fades off. Don't you love that? I love how he says, peace, Mikers. You know, he kind of throws in a, hey, Miker, you know, there, whatever, anyway. And then he ends with, they should be called the what? The children of God. Everything that we yearn for and look for and want from God is found in Jesus. 
And if you'll lean into that walk, you'll lean into that relationship, there's nothing that God intends for us to have and experience that's not ours. There's no new growth we can't experience. There's nothing we can't follow through on. There's no stronghold that can't be shaken loose from if Jesus, our Jesus, is God. I want us to end today in 1 Timothy. Would you go there for a moment? Appreciate your kind attention today. Our know our time is almost done. 1 Timothy chapter 2. And look, if you will, at verse number 5. And I think this verse takes on greater weight in light of what we have just studied this morning. 1 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 5. 1 Timothy 2 and verse 5. And as you're turning there, um, I was thinking about our study today and just kind of had this hit me just before I came out, actually, for the service today, thinking about how many God things we're going to be in this room this morning. So God's word, right? We opened that today. He says if we meet in his name that God's spirit is in the room, right? There's two. Number three, every person in the room is an image bearer of God, maybe fallen at best, but we all are in the image of God. And number four, everybody in this room, God sent his son to die for our sins. There's a lot of God in this room. And that manifestation of God is in Jesus, the one who's the head of this thing called the church. Now, I want you to think about that as we read these verses in 1 Timothy 2. Verse 4, who will have all men to be saved and to come into the knowledge of the truth. And then here it is, key verse today, for there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself a ransom for all to be testified in due time. Jesus alone, we believe in what's called the hypostatic union, big word for Jesus is 100% God and 100% man. We believe that there's only one person who is God and man. Listen to me. Therefore, he is the only one that can bring God and man close, closer than anyone else. And where we're missing it is not we don't appreciate the man, Jesus. I love looking at pictures from the Holy Land and things like that. But he's bigger than that. He's not just the man. He's the man, Christ Jesus. He is the Messiah. He is God in the flesh. And so if you want to get closer to God, you only can do that through the one who is the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by him. There it is today. Do you practically believe Jesus is God and you're saved? Do you practically believe Jesus is God and you're being sanctified and growing and believing anything's possible? Because Jesus, your Savior, is God. Here's the question, and we'll pray. Will you allow God to give you a greater appreciation for the sonship of Jesus who possesses exclusively access to God's full grace and God's full equality? Let's pray together. Lord, thank you for your word today.